Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hey, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have a very uh, esteemed guest. Dane Langdale, a professor at Oxford of uh, plant biology, plant genetics. Uh, Jane, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. Um, would you just give a brief bio and introduction about uh, you know who you are, and, and then we'll get into the work that you're doing? Sure. So I'm a professor in the plant sciences department at the University of Oxford. I've been here uh, for about 25 years, actually. Um, so I've been working in plant genetics and development for quite some time. But I actually did my PhD in human genetics, so switched fields after that uh, when I realized that plants were more interesting to me. And so I teach and I do research in the university. What's your latest project that's, uh, that's fascinating you right now that you're working on? So essentially, the, the whole of my research group works on aspects of shoot development in plants. So, so particularly how leaves develop. And so one of the questions we ask is that, when plants grow, they, they essentially, the shoots are what we call indeterminate. They'll just keep on going, whereas leaves have what's known as a, de- a determinate developmental program. So they have a defined destiny, a defined shape. And that, that's a major switch in genetic mechanism to go from indeterminate to determinate. And so we're interested in how that happens. And we're also interested in how it evolves because the early land plants didn't have leaves. So that was a a switch that had to be acquired in order for leaves to evolve in the first place. And then the other question that we're interested in is once that leaf is initiated on the shoot, how does the pattern of cell types within it develop? And in this context, we're particularly interested in an anatomy that's known as Kranz anatomy, which is found in plants that carry out what's known as C4 photosynthesis. And C4 is is more efficient than C3 photosynthesis, which is used by the majority of plants. But in order for C4 to operate, you have to have, or in most cases, you have to have this specialized anatomy. And so one of the big questions my group is asking is how does that anatomy actually develop in the leaf and what are the different genetic mechanisms between C4 plants and C3 plants? What's your goal with the research once you understand uh, the anatomy that that enables a plant to, you know, to be a C4 plant. Do you want to increase photosynthetic efficiency of plants, or you just want to understand what's going on? Well, there's a, there's, there's both. Both is the answer. So, for fundamental biology, it's really interesting to try and understand how such a complex mechanism evolved in the first place. And in the case of Kranz anatomy, it evolved 60 times independently. And so, even though it it seems like a really sophisticated change. There's a number of things in the leaf that have to change. For example, the veins have to get closer together and the cell types around the veins have to develop in a different way. It seems that evolution worked out how to do it 60 times, 60 separate times. And so so trying to figure out, you know, what the underlying mechanism is, is really fascinating. But perhaps equally importantly, that if we were able to engineer that anatomy into C3 plants such as rice or wheat, there is then the prospect of being able to engineer those plants to actually carry out C4 photosynthesis. And if we were able to do that, 
then it's predicted that we could increase yield by about 50%. We'd essentially enhance water use efficiency so the plants would be more drought tolerant and we'd need to put less nitrogen on them too. So it's a real win-win-win situation if we were able to do that. So what kind of plants are C4 versus C3 and, and what environmental pressures do you think led plants to uh, to change their anatomy in that way? That's a good question. And so the, the evidence, to, well, first of all, the C4 plants are things like sorghum, maize, sugarcane, and C3 are wheat and rice are the, the biggest crop examples. And, and essentially more species, many, many more species are C3 than C4. Um, but there are examples of C4 species across the whole range of the plant uh, flowering plant group. And so essentially the, what C4 plants do is that they are better able to fix carbon dioxide because there is less competition from oxygen. And so if I just take a, a step back on that, C3 plants fix all of their carbon dioxide with an enzyme called ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase. And that enzyme is competitively inhibited by oxygen. And so if the dissolved oxygen concentrations are high, which they are at high temperature, then Rubisco becomes very inefficient at fixing carbon dioxide. And so what's thought is that the, the essentially when the, when the carbon dioxide levels drop and when the temperatures are high, then there is a selective advantage to being C4 and probably a combination of those things drove the evolution. Most C4 species evolved about 25, 30 million years ago. So you you want to try to change, let's say, rice and wheat, the anatomy of which part of the plant to make it into a, a C4-type plant? Leaves? So essentially all of the leaves, yeah. So, so most of our work is on rice. So we work, I'm currently coordinating a consortium of international researchers on what is known as the C4 Rice Project. Um, it's funded by the Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we are essentially a team of people with different expertise. So some people are working on the, on the metabolic side and, and our group and a couple of others are working on trying to, to modify the anatomy because essentially we need to do both things in order to generate C4 rice. We need to change the anatomy so that there are, the veins are closer together in all of the leaves and that there are two rings of photosynthetic cell types around those veins. And so Kranz actually is German for wreath, so it's, it was named because you get these concentric rings of photosynthetic cell, cell types around the veins. And then once we've done that, or uh, essentially we need to then get the right photosynthetic enzymes into those two cell types to actually switch on the metabolic pathway. So it's quite a complex project, and it's a very, very long-term project in terms of when we anticipate it will actually get in, you know, into the field. Yeah, what the potential timeline on how long it might take you or all these groups to make this happen? So we started in 2008 and we're now on the phase three of the project and, and we're still very much in the phase of, particularly with the anatomy, of trying to understand the fundamental biology of how these things actually are regulated in the context of a C4 plant. But the prediction is that by 2019, we'll be able to enter in, into a serious engineering phase to actually engineer the, the pathway into rice. But that, that could well take 10 years. We're talking about having to, at this point, unless we find a magic switch, we're talking about having to, to modify the activity of you know, around 20 genes. And so that's not going to be a trivial uh, endeavor. 
And then if we, if we are successful at doing that, which I think we will be at some level, whether or not we create a true C4 plant, I'm not sure at this stage, it'll then take probably another 10 years into breeding programs. So, so I know you're the future tech podcast because it's here now, but it's, we're actually anticipating 20, 2039. <laughs> but, you know, when we started in 2008, there was barely a person who thought, you know, it was a sensible idea to even try. And, you know, we have made progress over the last few years and people now you know there's a lot more people who believe that you know one day we could well do this i understand why your method involves a lot of factors it's so complicated what about the process of photosynthesis itself i mean can that be accelerated or improved how complicated is it um so there is a there's another gate funded project actually that's led uh, by another consortium of researchers and they they're looking at ways in which to modify individual components of photosynthesis. And so essentially trying to make C3 better than it is. And, you know, they're having success on, in that approach as well. So I think, I think at the end of the day, we're going to, you know, it's going to be a, a combined toolkit that's used to essentially increase yield. I mean, if you talk to people now at the, at the coalface, as it were, as to what they want in developing countries in terms of getting them enhanced yield, they want they want drought resistance. They want um, protection against pests because those are the things that are, you know, actually devastating crop yields right now today. But when we look forward to the future in 2050, then essentially that we have to increase yield. And right now, everybody thinks, well, the yield gap, so the amount, the extent to which you achieve maximum yield through farming practices hasn't been, is rarely achieved. I mean, it is in the developed world, but not in the developing world. But there will become a point where, you know, we're driven to the point where we have to reach those maximum yields. And then we're going to be looking to say, okay, well, the only thing left we can do is just maximize the efficiency with which the plants convert sunlight into energy. So now I think, you know, the people who are really suffering crop losses think it's a luxury to be thinking about about photosynthesis. But I, I am convinced that in the future, it's going to be absolutely essential be able to enhance the photosynthetic efficiency of crop. I guess there's many paths forward. I've, I've heard of like super rice and they're trying to imbue it with, you know, more vitamins, better nutritional profile. I guess that's yep. a, an effort as well, right? Yep. I mean, many of the grains we eat, you know, are not, not as nutritionally beneficial as they perhaps might be if we could make them. So, um, so as I say, this is just one, one thing in the toolkit that we're going to have to use going forward. Uh, particularly in the developing world. I'm just to step back for a minute. You said, I don't know how many years ago, but plants didn't even used to have leaves at some point. How did they, um, how did they conduct photosynthesis and what did they look like? And why do you think, well, I don't know about what to ask why they didn't have leaves, but how do plants operate without leaves? So the, the plants that, are, that most resemble what would have been the earliest land plants that are living today are mosses and liverwort. And they have sort of leaf, mosses in particular have leaf-like structures, but they're not, they're not true leaves in as much as they don't have vascular tissue, so they don't have veins. And if you think about those plants, they're all very tiny. They're not particularly successful, and certainly they wouldn't you know, be high-yielding in, in terms of food. And so the, first, the evolution of leaves first occurred around the same time as a group of plants known as the lycophytes evolved. And the example that most people recognize is that the tall trees that were that effectively gave rise to the coal deposits we have now, the big lycophyte trees, they were the first ones to have leaves. And of course, they you know, were incredibly successful and, and reached great heights. 
Um, and it was having the leaves, in fact, gave plants the opportunity to, to really start investigating the, you know, the, the airspace around them effectively and to grow tall. And that also came with the, mm. the development of vascular tissue because that gave veins and it gave strength to the tissue. So they were able to go upright. But leaves, again, right. leaves evolved independently. So there's at least three or four independent emergences of, of leaves during the, the record of land plant evolution. So And again, it seems as though in that case, we did some work a few years ago, there is a mechanism that is used in flowering plants today, in most flowering plants, which is responsible for saying, don't be a shoot anymore, be a, a leaf, and maintaining that determinate program. And, and we were able to show that that same mechanism is used in current day lycophytes, so relatives of those Carboniferous trees that are now uh, that are still alive today, and they seem to use exactly the same mechanism. And yet, those two groups evolved leaves, you know, at least 100 million years apart. And yet, the same genetic toolkit was recru recruited on both occasions. And so, it, that's one of the reasons, you know, when we think about how you know how complex and how difficult it might be to engineer Kranz anatomy, we think, well. You know, evolution can't have done it differently 60 different times. There must be a key. We've just got to find out what it is. Yeah, it makes sense. Would it be ridiculous to go a different path and take sorghum or sugarcane or another plant and make it produce rice? Do you wouldn't, you know, take yeah. a C4 plant and make it produce rice? Is that crazy? I don't think you'd be able to make make it produce rice per se, but I think, you know, what a lot of people say to me is, well, why don't you just, you know, if this, because rice is, you know, the staple food across most of Asia. So one of the questions is, well, why don't people just start eating sorghum and maize instead? But there's such a cultural association with rice. I think, you know, it's probably easier to think about engineering C4 rice than getting everybody across, across Asia to stop eating rice and eat maize instead. Well, okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, within the C4 world, are there any superstars that are way more efficient even than the other C4 plants that you can look at? Not really, no. No. I mean, what what is going on, a number of groups are doing this, is there are a number of species that are kind of intermediate between C3 and C4. And they use, um, they're not as efficient as C4, but they're slightly more efficient than C3. And so with the ability now to sequence genomes and from a number of these species very easily and also to, to sequence all of the RNA that is expressed at any one time in those organisms. There's a lot of comparative work that can be done to say, well, actually, what genes might it be that have changed either their structure or their activity or their regulation during that transition from C3 to the intermediate to C4? And can we get any clues from that? And so that Bioinformatics and doing you know, large analysis of computational analysis of large data sets is very key to what we're trying to do or how we're doing it. it but what that does then is, is generate a whole list of genes that might be candidates for, for what was important, is important for converting C3 to C4. And, and then at the end of the day, we still have to do the grunt work of actually functionally testing these. And that's the bit that's slow because one thing we can't do is speed up the life cycle of the plant. So we, in order to test these, we have to make a transgenic plant and we have to get seed from that plant before we can start actually analyzing what changes we might have made, which is, which is why the, even though we're, we're, we're a lot further ahead than we were 10 years ago, it's still a slow process to do the analysis. When you make these transgenic plant variations, you call them, um, do mo any of them live or do most of them die or malfunction in some critical way? Or um, So what we've been finding, so for example, we, 
we had um, 70 candidates that we thought might regulate CRANS. And so what we did was we said, okay, well, if, if it regulates CRANS in a C4 plant, so these are maize genes, what happens if we just switch them on in rice? Not, not in a sophisticated way. We weren't trying to control the timing or the space. Just what would happen if we switched them on? And out of those 50, about 40-odd did absolutely nothing to the rice plant whatsoever. The plants grew totally normally at every stage of development and set seed normally, which you know, was a bit soul-destroying for some of the researchers doing that. Uh, doing those experiments because as I say that that effort to get 45 transgenic lines and analyze them is a huge amount of work but actually what it did was eliminate those 45 from our further further work in terms of engineering so it was actually a really good effort to to whittle down the number of genes and then and then the ones that um we had for one reason or another already thought might be higher priority as candidates most of those actually prevented the, so when we make a transgenic plant, we introduce the gene into what's known as callus tissue, which is essentially uh, tissue that's undifferentiated. And then we induce it to develop and regenerate. And most of those that we think are really important, when we tried to do that, the plant wouldn't regenerate. So we were essentially really messing up the system by by turning on the gene at, at high level. And so now what we're doing is, is taking a more sophisticated approach to manipulating those genes and making sure that they're, they're turned on just in the right space or just at the right time and trying to analyze what effect that has. And I guess with that many genes, as many combinations and permutations you can do too to figure it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we have now, though, which we didn't have when we started the project, is, is the ability to do I mean, aspects of uh, cloning genes in, in much larger pieces of DNA than we used to. So it used to be we would have to essentially take a piece of DNA, put it in a vector and put it into a plant one at a time. And then if we wanted backs of those genes, we would have to cross the plant. So in the second, first phase of the C4 rice project, the there were transgenic plants made that individually expressed enzymes of the C4 photosynthetic pathway. So these were metabolic components. And there were five or six of those that were made independent lines. And then it's taken, it we're still, and this is work that's being done at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, we're still crossing the various combinations to try and get plants that have stacks of five or six genes, for example. Whereas now the technology is such that we can, we can take those six genes and stick them in a single vector and put it straight into the plant intact. So there are so many advantages that apart from the speed, it also means that all six genes that we introduce are in, in one place. And so as you start crossing plants, they don't separate again, which is what happens when you, you're stacking them um, through crossing, basically. Are there ways to use uh, computer models and AI? to get you to uh, the right combination faster? Is there any genetic modeling systems? So, yeah, we have computer modelers on the um, modeling people on the project who are essentially taking what is known about the kinetics of enzymes in the C3 pathway, building a model of what happens um, in a C3 plant right now, and then essentially saying, well, what would happen if you add one enzyme? And this is taking a while. I mean, we don't yet have it to the point where it's predictive. So in, we are using some of our lines that we've made where we have introduced one enzyme, and then we look to see what effect that has on metabolism and feed that data mm. back into the model to refine the model. So ultimately, we would hope to be able to say at least 
you know, if we've kind of done it by feeding the model with data, at least the model will ultimately be able to tell us how to optimize the pathway. But also, hopefully, as well, you know, what order to introduce the genes and how, what relative levels of expression of each gene would be required to get, get the most efficient pathway. It's amazing how complicated it is and how many people are working on it for, for how long. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's, the, it's an Apollo project for plant biology, I think. <laughs> are there any other species of rice that have different characteristics that you could look at or use? Like how many different kinds so of rice are there? I mean, there are a lot of, there's, you know, many different rice varieties. And, and at the start of the project, again, this was work that was done at Erie in the Philippines. They, they looked at a, a large variety, I think it was about 50 different rice species, and looked to see whether or not there was any evidence that there was more C4-like photosynthesis, so whether they were fixing carbon dioxide more efficiently, and also painstakingly went through and, and took cross-sections of leaves of everything and measured to see whether there was any evidence of more C4-like leaf anatomy in terms of how close the veins were spaced and things. And there was there was some differences, but nothing that made you think, oh, what we need to do is somehow get the qualities of the genetic traits from that rice variety into a rhizostiba, which is the, the rice that we eat. So there just wasn't a big enough signal in any of the wild relatives to think that that was the way to go. But again, I think you know, if we get to the point where, where the, the chassis is in rice, I think the wild rice varieties may give us information for, for the fine-tuning of how to really maximize it into, in rice. Are you, I don't know if, I'm, if I misunderstand or not, but are you essentially trying to make the goal of a man-made leaf or to, take, to learn the process of photosynthesis such that it can be created in a lab or modified at will? Or is that even... Ten times more ambitious than that. I think that's ten times more ambitious <laughs> in terms of you mean like synthetically making the leaf. Yes, that would that would be ten times more ambitious. That doesn't mean it couldn't be done. I mean, if wow. we can get the models, but <laughs> it would be you know it would be many years down the line. I think. I mean, right now, if we can make. I mean, there are no. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know at this point. So, of course, everything we're doing is through transgenesis and genetic engineering and we're doing genome editing to make some of our lines but you know 10 years ago there was no nobody even had a hint that genome editing was on the horizon and so people often say to me well how are you going to make a transgenic plant where you have to modify you know 25 genes and now we already know that we can introduce seven or eight genes at a time which we never could before we also know that with genome editing we can modify seven genes and then segregate by crossing segregate away the transgene so who knows you know by 2025 or whatever what technologies will be available in order to enable us to modify those 25 or whatever genes that we may need to to actually make C4 rice. Amazing. I'd just be glad if we I'd just be glad if we get there and we know which genes it is we need to work with. <laughs> yeah, amazing. I didn't realize it was so complicated and so complex. That's incredible. Um do you think that making a C4 type rice will be the upper limit or is there a way to make it even more efficient? 10 times more efficient, 50 times more efficient. There are people working on seeing to what extent C4 photosynthesis can be improved in C4 plants. 
and there are certainly there are certainly there's certainly evidence that for example you could increase C4 efficiency in cooler temperatures because i mean what you have to remember right now is that if you have a field in the UK in the average summer then a C3 plant is going to do better than a C4 plant because it's only at the higher temperatures that the C4 plant is is more efficient because the cost it, there's essentially an energetic cost to being C4 um, you know there's extra reactions that have to take place and that requires energy so so that cost is only beneficial if there's a payoff and if it really is essentially preventing oxygenation of rubisco and prevent well, I'm not wording that very well but essentially there's an energetic cost and so at cooler temperatures C4 is not the most efficient and there is certainly evidence that there are ways in which you could make C4 more efficient at cooler temperatures, for example. And so again, like the, what I'm calling the fine-tuning, if we get C4 right, I think there is still some fine-tuning that could be done in C4 plants. I mean, one of the things that's always quoted is that you know, C4 plants are generally more drought-tolerant. They have better water use efficiency, and it's thought it's because, because photosynthesis is more efficient. They don't have to open the stomata on the leaf surfaces so much and therefore you get less evaporation of water. But having said that, maize is really not very drought tolerant. So there are things there probably to do with the root system. Um, I don't know what else that you could say, well, actually C4 photosynthesis in maize could be made even more efficient. Uh, and certainly we need to deal with the drought tolerance issue with maize. What about um, global climate change? Are you engineering towards the anticipated conditions 20, 30 years from now, or is that not a factor? And, and what will that naturally select for in favor, do you guess, if, it, uh, if it's happening and if it does happen? So higher CO2, um, you might think, well, that's going to favor C3 plants because it, they'll have less oxygen competing with the CO2. But the models show that the, 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 the levels we're talking about, C4 are still going to have a much better um, better efficiency than C3, even with the predicted CO2 levels rising. But the temp temperature rise is certainly going to be beneficial for C4 plants, and the any drought is going to be better for C4 plants. Of course, one of the things that I think we can assume is that it's not going to be so much water availability as water unpredictability. There's going to be more drought, and then there's going to be more flood. But certainly, lack of water and higher temperatures it's going to benefit C4 plants more than C3 plants. Okay. Well, very good. I, I think I've questioned you to death, but uh, <laughs> thanks for the answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> any any last items that I didn't touch upon that uh, you think would be important to talk about? Uh, not that I can think of right now. Okay. And then uh, as a last item, what are um, what's a resource or two for interested listeners that want to learn more about, you know, your work and the consortium and, and um you know, ask questions or get involved, where can they go and where can they find out? So they can go to the website, which I think I emailed, well, I emailed through, the c4rice.com. So we have a contact. They can Anybody can contact to ask questions. We have an administrator who fires it off to the appropriate academic. And there's on that website, there's a the sort of the, the science bit is done for sort of non-plant biologists so that every, anybody can sort of dig in from the start. Okay, well, very good. Well, Professor Langdale, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. And, uh, it's interesting. It's amazing. It's, it's unbelievable how complicated it is. And, you know, thank you for your good work and for coming to the podcast. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, 
to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.